0: Well, my name's Adam. We have not had a chance to meet, and uh, I gotta tell you, I this part of the summer was never my favorite part of the summer. Uh, the the post Fourth of Julyness that exists was always kind of a drag for me. And I don't know if like I don't know what your experience was on the fourth this past week, but I love my neighborhood. My neighborhood is so like we had all i can say the only word that i could think of that doesn't quite do justice is crescendo like from like a little bit like when it looks like the sun might start heading towards the horizon the neighborhood comes to life and the the money that went up into the air out of our neighborhood was phenomenal and so i you could just like like lay down in the grass and just have all these booms all around you it's like america it was amazing but the problem is then July 5th comes and then you're starting to stare the end of summer in the face and my birthday is, um, is the first part of August. And so for me as a kid, uh, you know, everything in summer would move towards Independence Day and then we'd have it and then you'd have feel this kind of down, like, oh man, there's something on the horizon. And then my birthday would come and I would know, oh, here we go, almost time to go back to the clink. So I go back and forth between enjoying this part of the summer and being in a depression, so bear with me. Uh, But this summer, we are using Hebrews 11 to travel through the Old Testament along the thread of faith. We're looking for the definition of faith, but we're also looking for the pathway, or at least the trailhead to the pathway, for gaining faith. Now, so far we've seen the examples of of Abel, of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. These these individuals are presented as heroes— due to the faith that they operated with as they journeyed through life with God. So great was their faith in God that that all of them died without seeing the fullness of fulfillment of God's promises. But they died sure of the fact that that fulfillment would indeed come. So an entry point to their faith And the starting point for for the two heroes that we consider today is is a quick examine of covenant relationship, of covenants God has made, and how how his faithfulness to those covenants evidence his character and his worthiness of our trust. Now, from a cultural perspective, the gravity of covenantal relationship is lost on the modern secular world. It is not uncommon for two or more people to enter into an agreement, enter into like a legal contractual uh, agreement, be in this agreement, sign the paperwork that makes this agreement active. But when new circumstances emerge, the agreement is broken regardless of what consequences might come. This is an unfortunate reality of of the culture that we live in. Even a signed document isn't necessarily honored by by those that, that sign it. An unfortunate generality that emerges from this reality is that people are unfaithful. I know this is news to many of you. I can tell by your faces. This is like a shocker, right? People are unfaithful. People are unfaithful To the point of breaking promises, breaking agreements, breaking covenants. People are unfaithful or perhaps more cynically, which I'm not in the habit of being cynical, so this is hard, this is a, you know, I'm stepping into new territory by by saying this, but uh, people are unfaithful or people are only faithful to themselves. Now we can extend that a little bit and say, well, maybe people are faithful to their tribe, they're faithful to their family but ultimately it comes down to uh, a a very centrist uh, uh, self-focus that that our, our secular world is faithful to, faithful to self. Now the fragmentation that is caused by the unfaithfulness of those around us leads to a difficulty of trusting people. That should, like, any amens for that one? Has that ever happened to you? Has anybody been unfaithful to you to where it makes it hard for you to trust other people? This is a reality that we live in, and this is a brokenness, this is a fragmentation that we all, and this is where some of, like, the the fragments kind of bump up against each other when we're in relationship with each other, because we have all of this experience that tells us that people are unsafe, they're unfaithful, we can't put our trust in them. Living in that reality is chaos, destructive, corrosive chaos. Chaos. The reality for a lot of our culture, the reality for a lot of the people that we know, the reality for a lot of the folks that we love is this relational chaos. The corrosive part of that chaos affects our ability to to know and trust each other, but by extension, it affects our ability to know and trust God this type of corrosive chaos can lead us to question is god real does he care and does he act now the faith of the heroes of hebrews 11 came as a product of participating with god in covenant relationship Covenants first that, that were made with Noah and Abraham that we've seen over the weeks as we've been unfolding this series. Covenants passed on through generations. Covenants that were passed on even to us. God made covenants that set conditions for righteousness. A word often used out of context or a word often used to describe behavior. Righteousness is not about behavior. Righteousness is not about morality. It simply means being in right relationship with someone or something. In other words, the opposite of chaos. Righteousness is achieved when order exists. When all sides of a relationship are operating in their purposed, created capacity. So covenant agreements where one is not willing to fulfill their side will fail. But God on one side of the equation brings this. In num- Numbers chapter 23 it says God is not a man so he does not lie. He's not human so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? This is what God brings to covenant relationship. And this is also how the heroes of the faith In Hebrews chapter 11 come to heroic status. They let God be God. They let that verse define God. So for us to exemplify the heroes of the faith, those heroes that went before us, we don't achieve faith. We don't earn faith. We don't see faith come by way of our own effort and and our own talent. We see faith grow as a product of participating in covenantal relationship with the living God. Now, while the covenants these heroes had with God apply to us, everything that was promised to them is still a promise for us. That is still active. We also have another covenant, the new covenant, one that was confirmed with the blood of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. These covenants, all of them, line out for us the order that comes from participating with God and knowing his nature helps us with this because faith is both intellectual and intuitional. Faith requires both knowledge of something and allowing that knowledge to create expectation. Today we're going to see two men, Jacob and Joseph, that passed on their knowledge of God to those that would come after them and thus earn their place as heroes of the faith. What they pass on, though, is more than intellectual knowledge. It's a relational knowledge that was achieved through a paradigm shift that led them from from seeking God's participation in their life to their participation in the plan of God. That cannot be overstated. They began with the paradigm of God, participate in my life. And as they experienced the reality of the living God, their paradigm shifted to participating with God. This is submission, this is obedience, this is an end to resistance to order, this is the path to right relationship. So let's jump in, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is a son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again, and in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. So Isaac, who we talked about last week, is an example of heroic faith because he places God at the center of order and he sees himself as a participant rather than the purpose. Isaac becomes aware that he is a part of the whole rather than being the whole, which is a countercultural uh, way of thinking in our time. His example is that, that to step into faith is to step into, I'm sorry, to step out of the center of order and into the reality that we are created to be a part of the whole, a loved part of the whole, but our existence is to be a part of a community, a family that has God at his place in the center. Isaac receives the blessing from his father. He lives uh, lives a life in covenant relationship with God, and then he passes that on to Jacob. He can pass on the covenant because it became his lived reality. And then we have Jacob. Jacob, Jacob's interesting. Jacob is a scoundrel. Jacob gives me hope. (laughs) Jacob's birth is recorded in Genesis 25. He dies in Genesis 49. And like a lot of these stories, he kind of uh, Jacob will weave in and out of the narrative, uh, but plays a pretty significant role in Genesis. We're not going to cover everything that he did. And so Genesis 25 through 49, this is where you can find him to get more context for what we're talking about today. Uh, But while Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac may have had. Uh, their moments of lacking faith and making some questionable decisions. If you know about Jacob's life, you know that this dude from his birth to a wrestling match with God, Jacob is deceitful, he's corrupt, he's selfish, I love that he is a scoundrel. He is. Jacob was about competitive survival. A fight that Genesis 25 tells us about that happened in the womb, um, the pre-birth fight that he fought with his fraternal twin, Esau, gives us a, kind of a, an opening into the character of Jacob. He was always in conflict. Now let's take a step back for a second and think about conflict and those that we know that are always in conflict. I might be talking about myself sometimes. The story of jacob though like every hero of the faith listed in hebrews 11 is multifaceted and complex it takes several chapters to to unlock the full story of jacob with all of the data that's available of jacob's life it's interesting that the writer of hebrews would recognize him as a hero not for all of the other things that we see in that narrative, but because he accepted and stewarded and then passed on a covenantal relationship. But the road to that was a difficult one. We see in Jacob, a man that tricked his brother out of his inheritance. He robbed him of Isaac's blessings. Jacob deceived his uncle in a business deal that, that gave him the best of his uncle's uh, flocks of animals. Esau, his brother, was twice victimized by, by Jacob's scoundrelness. I wrote selfishness, but I like scoundrel, scoundrelness better. I'm not even going to ask Ashley if that's a word. Um, I think I know the answer, but I think it's going to become a word. If I say scoundrelness enough, then it might be uh, entered into uh, our record as a word his scoundrelness Esau is twice victimized by by Jacob's scoundrelness and he says this in Genesis 27 he says isn't he rightly named Jacob this is the second time he's taken taken advantage of me he took my birthright now he's taken my blessing Esau had a brother that was a jerk now Jacob's name it means to follow one to follow uh, at another's heel but finally his word means supplanter he supplanted his brother esau he stole from him selfish ambition leads him to use his brother as a stepping stone to raise himself up you know anybody that uses people as stepping stones to raise himself up jacob is one of them selfish ambition is not a new invention Jacob uses people for his own benefit. Similar to what happens to people in our time and in our culture that do this, Jacob causes division, anger, and he ultimately puts his life at risk. He has stepped on so many people. His competitive survival his selfish ambition has led to so much conflict and so much broken relationship that he flees from his brother he flees from his uncle he flees from people in his own family afraid for his life because of scoundrelness he flees to his uncle first to escape esau but being in his, uh, his uncle's community, old habits die hard um, while he's with his uncle. Jacob marries uh, two sisters. He's got a bunch of kids. Obviously, there's a lot to this story that, that is in those that, that we're, we're, we're moving through quickly. Um, but one way he grows in wealth is that he swindles his uncle by working for him and accepting livestock as his pay, but he sets it up to where he gets the best of the livestock. And if you think about the, the uh, the economy of of a genetic line, a strong genetic line in in terms of, of, of ranching. He stole the strongest genetic lines of his uncle's flocks, leaving the weak ones for his uncle. And this results in fleeing from his uncle when folks get wise to the scheme and his cousins are like, dude, you're stealing our stuff. Now, one might note in looking at Jacob's life, all of the things that Jacob was attempting to get through deceit and scoundrelness all of those things are things that God promised to provide for him. God had one side of this covenantal deal. Jacob was custodian of the other side. His obligation to the deal was one simple word, righteousness. Now, we can tell when we apply the definition of righteousness as being in right relationship, we can tell that Jacob is, just by virtue of the fact that he is in constant flight from people that he did dirty, he is not in right relationship with anybody let alone God. He's not upholding his end of the covenant. His life is in chaos. Jacob's transgression to the covenant is causing chaos in his life. He does not have security. He's losing his wealth. He's fleeing from his family. Living in chaos... And God is watching. Now, this is where God demonstrates character. One part of his character is that God loves his kids. When we look at this and we say the, the words, God is watching, I don't know about you, but my history leads me to the place of like, oh, no, no. You know, I, I I get concerned. But what we see here, with God watching, is that God loves His kids. Not only does God love His kids, this goundrel, God pursues His kids with that love. That love isn't a noun. That love is a verb, and He pursues His kids with that love. Jacob is a mess. He is broken by the consequences of his selfishness. He's isolated from family. He's chased around the land that he should be settling in. He's fearing for his life. He's fearing for the life of of his wives, his kids. He's on a bank of a river. He is looking at this fact. He's just in constant flight. He is seeing the chaos of his life. And then God does what god does. In Genesis 32 he meets him in this desolation. Starting in verse 22. During the night Jacob got up and took his two wives his two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok river with them. After taking them to the other side he sent them over he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of the socket. The man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob, subplanter, follower, Scoundrel. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God. You have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell, you, tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named Jacob. The place, face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. This story is weird. This story is so, it is so hard to comprehend outside of the lens of love being a verb. God confronts Jacob in his sin. And he does so in line with his character. Every time we see God confront someone with their sin, he does it from this angle of love. Rather than revoking the covenant which would be deserved. Yes, like that that is what would be deserved. He had every right to revoke the covenant, time and time again with Jacob. But rather than revoking the covenant, the loving father gives Jacob an opportunity to confront his brokenness and enter into healing. Jacob's fragmentation passes through the love of the father and is changed forever. Jacob's wrestling with God is symbolic. Now, it really was a wrestling match. This really happened. And, and, and you know, if, if the, the vision is that Jacob was actually holding his own, that's really not what was happening. This is like like maybe putting your hand up a smaller person and just holding it there while they're like, you know. That's, that's what's happening in this wrestling. But Jacob is not really fighting with God. Jacob is fighting with himself. This is a symbolic inner fight with the chaos that his sin has created. Jacob used self reliance. He's used deceit, trickery for survival rather than placing his trust in the promise of God. And so, even in this fight, as he's wrestling with God, he cannot stop fighting. He can't stop fighting. He refused to surrender until he was touched by God. Until God touches his hip, Jacob is unable to admit that he needs relationship with the Father. After he comes to realize how absolutely hopeless he is by himself. After he realizes that he has nothing, he can do nothing apart from the Father. He can't yet acknowledge. It takes that for him to be able to acknowledge, accept, and step into the covenant relationship. Jacob, on this night, finds righteousness with God. Order comes to his life. He's able to steward the covenant based on this righteousness, this right relationship. And what follows? What we see in Jacob's life Is that reconciliation follows? Order comes. Jacob receives a new identity that reflects his denial of self and his movement towards God. The false identity that led him to be a scoundrel is broken off. God offers forgiveness. And what we see in this is that God remained faithful. In seeing this love from the Father, Jacob moves from asking God to participate in his plan and joins God in his. Jacob's faith in God was established from this point as a product of participation participated with the plan of God and he died knowing that God would do what he said that he would do. He passed on that knowledge that came from a wrestling match on the bank of a river and in passing that on to his kids, Jacob becomes a hero of the faith. Hebrews eleven twenty-two tells us that Joseph is next. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when, when they left. Joseph, now this is one of my problems with, with giving uh, sermons in the Old Testament. I love a I I love VeggieTales. I love it. So in my head, I'm thinking of Little Joe. Little Joe. Like, anybody else? Just, anybody ever see Little Joe? Just raise your hand if you see. I got one, yeah? Okay. So it's very, I'm thinking of that in the back of my head. So I'm going to put that in the back, and I'm going to try to to speak from, not that place, but Little Joe. Little Joe was the 11th of 12 sons that Jacob had, and in the narrative of his life, you can find Genesis 37 uh, and through Genesis 50. Joseph is, as Jacob was, as this whole line is, these are, are, are really fundamental historical figures in Scripture. The writer of Hebrews mentions that he finds himself in Egypt, and this is how he found himself in Egypt. Genesis 37, 3 through 11. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. This is not healthy. <laughs> they couldn't say a kind word to him. This, that, this is animosity, right? So much animosity, of, of, uh, so much jealousy, so much uh, of this they can't even say a kind word to him one night joseph had a dream joseph was about to make it a lot worse when he told his brothers about the dream they hated him uh, more than ever listen to this dream he said we were out in the field tying up bundles of grain suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before me his brothers responded so you think you will be our king do you Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? While his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. So Joseph, using that, the, the definition of righteousness, uh, that right relationship, Joseph is not in righteousness with, with his family because they're jealous of him and because he's immature. He's sharing this stuff in a way that doesn't really help relationship. It's not like, hey, what do these things mean? It's like, hey, you're going to bow down before me. And I don't know about you, if you have siblings, if you've ever told them that they're going to bow down before you, it usually begins uh, an activity to find out how true that that really is. His openness about his dreams led his brothers to plot to kill him, but they settled for just selling him into slavery. So, in slavery, Joseph's life is a study of getting the short end of every stick. Joseph's life, you think about the fact that the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, calling Joseph a hero of the faith has nothing to do with this fact, is, is just fascinating to me. But Joseph. At every turn, get screwed. For folks that think that coming into righteousness with God leads to like a cush life, just read Joseph's life. His time in Egypt, after being sold into slavery by his family, kind of disavows us of that notion that things get easy when we follow Jesus. While he's in slavery, his master's wife tries to seduce him, and when he refuses her, he does the right thing. She falsely accuses him, and he goes to prison. And so he's in prison, getting the short end of that stick. He ministers to people while he's in prison, and one of the pr- people, as they're being released, is like, listen, I'm going to take care of you. You're a good dude. I'm going to remember you. I'm going to get you released. And the moment he sees the son on the outside of the prison, he forgets all about Joseph, and that's, that uh, short end of the stick comes back and he's stuck in prison for another couple of years he forgot joseph joseph's in his cell years later we're jumping he interprets a dream for pharaoh and he ultimately finds himself out of prison and raised up to a position of power second only to the pharaoh he's in charge of preparing food stores for a coming famine it's a f- uh, coming famine that Joseph warned about in a dream. A lot happening in like 15 years or so from when Joseph was first sold into slavery. And none of those things are why Joseph is a hero of the faith. It's interesting, though, that this famine brings unity back to the family as Joseph's brothers and father find relief from the famine from the very one that they sold into slavery. We see this in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 8. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you! He was alone with his brothers, and he told them who he was. Then he broke down and he wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to the Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers are speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. This part is pretty dang cool. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This is a pretty good example. A good example of somebody who could have pleaded with God to participate in their lives, but chose to participate in the plan of God. This famine that was rav- has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years. There will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. He is the one who made me the advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of this entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Participating in the plan, the faith, to participate in the plan. This is covenantal relationship in in one of the most high forms that we can see in Scripture, regardless of what happened to Joseph in Joseph's life. He knew that God is who God says that he is and would do the things that he said that he would do. He stuck it out every step of the way, participating in the plan of God rather than expecting God to participate in his plan. He's a hero of the faith though because he stewarded the covenant and he passed it on. We saw that Isaac realized that he was a part of the whole rather than being the whole. Jacob shifted from asking God to participate in his plan to submitting to God and participating with the covenant that was passed down to Joseph. Joseph is a hero of the faith because he understood that God is always at work even when it doesn't feel like it. God's will is a will of order, it's a will of perfection, and that perfected order will be fulfilled because God does what he says that he will do. The hardship, the unfairness of circumstance did not rob Joseph of the reality of God's character. The covenant is stewarded and passed on because these heroes came to know what it is to make the paradigm shift as it relates to participation. The covenant that that we are invited to step into, the covenant that we are invited to pass on, in addition to the covenants made with Noah and Abraham, is now the new covenant the covenant that creates the pathway to right relationship with god matthew 6:33 sums up that covenant in this way seek the kingdom of god above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need is that oversimplifying maybe but also no not at all that's the covenant There are two sides to that covenant. Right relationship and giving us everything that we need. Not as a sugar daddy but as a loving father that pursues his kids with that love. That verse in Matthew 6 that's Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount he puts it plainly for us. Place God at the center of order and participate in his plan for reconciliation. As a consequence, the economy and ecology of God will work in such a way that all of our needs will be met. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where faith grows. This is where our heroism begins. So, as we turn back to worship, there's a lot of things that, that, that we can apply to this next piece of our time together. I'm going to invite the, the ministry team to come forward as well as the worship team comes up. This is, uh, th- this is a place for us to acknowledge, to examine and to deal with God on the paradigm of participation. We all have a common entry point to relationship with God that we need him to intervene. Amen? Can we agree with that? We all have a common entry point. We need God's intervention into our life. And so some of us still need to feel that. If you are in the place of of needing to feel the intervention of God in your life, I would encourage you to come forward for prayer. If you are dealing with something now, even though you've seen God intervene time after time, if something has occurred that you just need to know His presence, you need Him to hear your cry, I'd invite you to come forward for prayer as well. But also, if you're in a place where you know the beckoning of the living God is calling you out of a relationship, that only seeks God's intervention, but into a relationship where we participate with the living God. If you are ready for that, if you feel yourself being drawn to that, I'd encourage you to come for prayer for that as well. So let me pray as we begin to worship again. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you release the gifts of your spirit here? Father, would you show us that you are a God of love and that love is what pursues your children. And so, Father, for those that need that pursuit today, sick them, God. Father, I pray that for those that feel your hand on their heart now, would you also move us to that place where we could respond where we could come, where we could pray together as a family and submit to your will. In Jesus' name.